0: So your ability to diagnose and react rather than following a script or a rigid process, it's one of the reasons, by the way, why I've become a firm fan of sort of characterizing the pipeline, not in terms of the very sort of conventional sales activity labeled stages, you know, qualifying, demonstrating, proposing, but instead getting salespeople to step back and think about where's the customer in their decision-making process. Are they at a very early exploring stage? Are they starting to more clearly define what it is they think they need and how they're going to decide? Or even post having decided a preference, are they in a sort of a verifying stage where they really want to go back and make sure they have negotiated the best deal, they have eliminated concerns and reservations, and I think that customer-centric perspective is so much more valuable than traditional series of sales activities glued together.
1: Hi friends, welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Bob Apollo. Bob's the founder of Inflection Point Strategy Partners based in the UK. And he's a very keen observer of where sellers should be focusing their efforts during this period of economic disruption. And with that in mind, he's joining me today on Sales Enablement, Episode 794, to have a conversation about how to sell in the midst of a downturn. I mean, a recession is not an excuse for not selling. Yes, it's harder. Yes, it's frustrating. But if you're willing to be thoughtful and methodical about how you go to market, you can still hit your numbers. And so at that end, we're going to dive into the three criteria that seller should use for identifying new sales opportunities at this time. Now, these are simple and effective guidelines for every seller. I've used very similar rules for selling into the teeth of recession myself, and I can tell you that, that these work. So we'll dig into the concept also of time to value, or what I like to call speed to outcome, and why this is more critically important than ever in sales. And, and personally, I think it should always be at the forefront of how you sell, recession or not. And we're also going to talk about the importance of selling outcomes versus selling solutions. You know, what's the impact on your ability to win new business if you're selling drills while your customer is trying to buy a hole? We can never have enough discussion about that. So, all of that and much, much more. But before we get to Bob, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. So, thank you. And also, if you haven't connected with me on LinkedIn, go to LinkedIn, linkedin.com slash in slash real Andy Paul. That's right, real Andy Paul, except
0: no imitations. All right, let's jump into it. Bob Apollo, welcome back to the show. Hey, I'm very pleased to be back again. Thank you for the invite. Well, no, it's a
1: pleasure to have you. So, um, where, are you, where are you hunkering down?
0: Well, I'm hunkering down. I wish I was hunkering down somewhere else, but I'm hunkering down in the the colourful city of Reading in the UK. Reading? Does
1: that mean you're a Reading football fan?
0: Oh, Andy, I wish uh, you, know, I thought you'd never ask. Uh, <laughs> as it turns out, no. I, I went to one of their games many years ago, but uh, for good or bad, I'm an Arsenal supporter.
1: Ah, a gooner. Okay. All right, well... I'll still talk to you, even though I'm a Liverpool fan, but you're not a threat this year, so we can we can chat. Though we, You probably took some pleasure in the fact that we weren't able to equal the record of the Invincibles uh, in terms yes, of... Yes, that was
0: very, very gracious of you and your team <laughs> yes. to help us preserve that record. So okay. that was much appreciated. It was a very gallant behavior on your part.
1: Well, thank you, thank you. So, um... <laughs> So how have things been in in the UK? I mean, I'm here in Manhattan. It's it's been shut down. It was yeah, coming to life a little bit now. But for a period of time, there was a real ghost town. Was it similar? And you know, you're in the outskirts of London, but uh, in London or
0: so you know, I can't really read uh, very clearly, not from personal experience, what the mood like in London. What the mood was like in London. Um, In Reading, which is a town about thirty miles to the west. Uh, and we live on the outskirts of the town rather than in the middle, Uh, it's all been pretty quiet. You know, we've uh, exercised daily, popped out to get some food shopping and so on, Um, but there have been dramatic reductions in the uh, use of cars and and even more dramatic reductions in the use of public transport. So Mm. uh, it'll be a while before that returns to normal
1: yeah i I've not been on a subway since uh, this whole thing started, and yeah. <laughs> my wife found herself in a situation uh, two, three weeks ago where I found she had to sort of take one, but she sort of sat and surveyed the station at first, and no one was going down the stairs. so she went down and you know mask and gloves on and so on. And yeah, she was one of two people in a train car uh, right. in, a, in a New York City subway on a Saturday night. She was relieved by that. Um, oh, that she was. Doesn't sound
0: sure. like a regular situation, does it?
1: Not in normal times, and so um, I'm sure we're going to get back to that. But it's like I said you can sort of notice a difference in street traffic here. There's yeah sort of day by day. It seems like a few more cars, and uh, so some people coming back to work, and yeah, hopefully we'll get to some restaurants and so on opening up before too long. So, do um, so want to talk about? Some things that have to do with with uh, business and selling during the this COVID era, and and you had recently written something that I thought was really quite good about how to sell in this time, and um, yeah, one point is you know in the midst of crisis like this, or we've got a looming recession, which I assume will hit Europe and the U.S. and so on, is in the world economy is there's still opportunities to sell in the midst of a recession.
0: Well, that's absolutely right. And I think it's extremely dangerous to assume uh, that nobody's buying. Um, People are still buying. Um, It's just that as salespeople, we have to recognize where the most promising opportunities to help our customers lie. Um, And uh, I think one of the things I'm seeing uh, talking to clients is that the projects that are still active, still going ahead, Tend to sit at the intersection of three really important criteria: that the the project is regarded as being uh, strategically relevant by the customer, that it's seen as being tactically urgent, and that the project can demonstrate a rapid time to payback. And I think if those conditions are satisfied, um, it's clear that uh, you know the more agile. Customer organizations uh, are looking ahead; they're not just looking at the current situation.
1: Yeah, and so when when you th- talk about being strategically strategically relevant, <laughs> easy for me to say, it seems like you're sort of leaning toward projects that maybe have a lot to do with with uh, transformation, right? As a lot of companies have been heavily involved in digital sure. transformation efforts, and. Yeah, almost now more than ever, when you're seeing that this huge disruption in in the way we work and go to market and the way our customers are buying, that this perhaps takes on greater urgency.
0: Well, I think it does. And um, I, I think one of the other associated patterns I'm seeing is it would probably be pretty rare nowadays for organizations not to have some sort of digital transformation initiative. You know, the level of maturity. Of that initiative varies pretty wildly, uh, and also the uh, the level of su- current success of that program uh, varies pretty significantly. And and some of the projects that I've seen going ahead are really around um, a digital transformation initiative, which is seen to be strategically relevant, which is uh, running has been running into obstacles. And which, if those obstacles are not eliminated, will will put the uh, the sort of digitizing company at a disadvantage as the market recovers. So they need to do something about it.
1: I would think there would be a, a sense of insecurity if you were in the midst of one of these transformation projects with this big disruption, yep. and you're looking ahead and you're thinking, yeah, what if my competition beats me to this point?
0: And uh, That's where, you know, uh, the marketeers have for a long time talked about buyer personas. But I think now there are also, there always have been actually, organizational personas. And, and it's really important and necessary to understand whether the potential customer is one of those organizations that has sort of internalized the current uh, situation. And seen it as an opportunity uh, to emerge from uh, as the recovery uh, builds up pace, to emerge at the head of that wave, rather than trailing behind. And I think there are some other potential customers who are perhaps more uh, more conservative about that. And I think you need to be able to read that. Um, and you you can see it in the pronouncements, the actions that the organisations are taking. You know, do they see this as a opportunity? To become more agile, to emerge more strongly, or are they still obsessed with just keeping the lights on?
1: Yeah, and preserving the status quo. Yeah. Yeah. I think if there's one thing that's that's clear from this, if there's any company that thinks that they're gonna preserve the status quo as it existed back in February, when September comes around or January first or whatever, they're really fooling themselves.
0: Uh, in every industry, there are obvious industries, but I think this is true in in every industry. That um, so, one of the things I advise uh, salespeople to do, I think, it's always a good discipline to have a target account list. Is to really go back and forensically reevaluate the target account list according to uh, what you can learn about, you know, the organizations on that list. Uh, Likely behaviors in, Mm -hmm. you know, as they emerge um, from, uh, you know, the challenges we're all facing right now. Yeah, well, I think that's,
1: I think there's are two two things that come out of that. One is, yeah, if a salesperson takes that advice and says, "Look, you're going to go back. We're going to look at the publicly available information. It could be if they're a publicly traded company, it could be financial statements, you know, filings." Uh, even if they're not, it could be press releases, whatever you could search online and try to find, is that in doing so, you're also going to improve your business acumen to some degree, your ability to assess the opportunities that exist.
0: Absolutely right. You'd certainly hope so, wouldn't you? Because uh, uh, whenever I've thought about ideal customer profiles, and of course that's one input into a target account program, I've always been absolutely convinced that a purely demographic approach to identifying target accounts, you know, our accounts are of certain size of a certain, you know, location and a certain industry. All that does is to paint the boundaries of the market you might choose to play in. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, it's much, much more important, but harder to do, which is why I think the effort is necessary and very worthwhile. Uh, to understand uh, sort of the structural behavioral, and cultural uh, dimensions of the organization within that demographic box um, and, and use that information to make smarter judgments uh, about where your energies ought to be focused
1: and there's all this other information that's now available tools exist you can get the yeah. sort of the technographic outline you know what technologies are they evaluating are they looking at you know other
0: firmographic information? Um, are they hiring? All of these things, much much more important, I think, as indicators of potential than just the very classic, um, you know, the, te- uh, the, the the classic demographics. And of course, you're right. Um, there's actually, if you if you're willing to look for it, there's an abundance of information that can give you very uh, very useful indicators. You've talked about hiring. You know, there are various ways, uh, whether you're looking at, you know, LinkedIn job adverts or what have you, um, you can far more easily access than you used to be able to information about the systems and platforms in place within organizations. Um, If you're, like many of my clients are, in the tech space and you're uh, sort of in one of these emerging scale up companies, Mm you probably want to assess whether your 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 your, your potential prospects um, have a track record of actually investing in uh, best of breed um, platforms, as opposed to always running back uh, to you know the big established brands. Um, that that is a really really powerful technographic uh, indicator, uh, and and of course in addition to that, there are certain platforms. Which, if in place, you're very complimentary to, and so on. Uh, those are so. It's both structural uh, and actually the platforms they use uh, have some behavioural implications to them. Mm-hmm. You know, are they early adopters or are they, you know, very conservative?
1: Yeah, I found another one that sort of struck me the last couple of days as I've been reading business news and so on. Is that I would look for a company that has refused to lay off employees. You know, I was looking at an example of a company, I forget the name, but across the board they all took all the employees took 35% pay cuts in order to preserve the jobs. Not to me, it seems like the psychology of that organization as they come out of the rec- into the recovery would be much more unified and aligned internally and people willing to go the extra mile to make things happen. As opposed to a company that, you know, laid off fifty percent of their sales team and now they're trying to hire people back.
0: Uh, yeah, very transactional, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, and actually, that's a, such an interesting story because I, 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 you know, many years ago, several decades ago, I cut my teeth as a salesman at HP uh, uh, in the days when HP was a, I think, a dramatically different company to the one you'd recognize today right. when it was HP, it was company that. Had bunches of stories about uh, how it treated its employees, and actually, before my time, they had been through um, a, a recession, a minor recession, and uh, they had collectively agreed that uh, for a period of time, employees would take a, you know, a cut in salary um, as a collective effort um, to preserve the workforce and be ready for the recovery. So, you know. Uh, I think that's such a, a healthy perspective. And, you know, I think if you were looking for which companies you might want to join, I think certainly mine, my mindset would be I'd much more, much prefer to be working for an organization that had this, uh, you know, we've invested heavily in building the expertise of our people. The last thing we want to do is just think of them as objects. Uh, to be discarded one moment, and you know, in the belief that all we have to do is recruit, and we're back to where we were. I, I think that's a completely misguided approach.
1: When I was also talking about from the perspective: if I were a seller and doing doing my research for building my target account list, and I was going to prioritize where I spend my time, yep. I would focus on the company that that stayed together, where the CEO made the decision, the management team made the decision, we're going to preserve our team because obviously we've got a ton of value there, and I'd look at them as saying yeah, they're the type that would be more likely to make the investment at this point in time, because they obviously are making it by keeping the people around, to solve some urgent problem they have.
0: Yep. So uh, these are all uh, good indicators, aren't they, if you, you, you thoughtfully choose where to look, what to look for, what signals to, to try and pick up for sure.
1: And so, your third aspect of it, I thought, was well, the second aspect you talked about is, is that it was uh, tactically urgent, which, yeah. yeah, there are problems people need to fix them. the midst of a recession. I mean, it, it's funny. I, this is going to be a, potentially a, a kind of steep recession. But, you know, previous recessions, we're talking about economic activity collectively falling 2%, 3%, so on. I mean, not, it's not like, business activity comes to a halt.
0: Yeah, I think this is a dramatically different scenario, and um, it's harder, I think, actually to look at any of our any of the experiences of people who are currently living, and you mm-hmm. know, I mean, including maybe at the edge of that, the Great Depression, because I think even there, e- economic activity, uh, as far as I can, you know, judge, didn't fall at the level that uh, I think it has, you know, it, it it will decline to before it recovers.
1: Yeah, in the, in the second quarter for sure. I mean, that's, we've seen some initial earnings reports for part of that period, but, you know, have been rough for some companies, been okay for others. But I think a full quarter impact and over the next two quarters has yeah, to be kind of grim. So, in that environment for sellers, the message is, though, that, yeah, not all is sweetness and light, but to your point, there are three criteria you can apply, which I agree with them, to try to find and identify the opportunities that, that where companies need to move forward.
0: Right. And, and, you know, as part of that process, by the way, of looking for those three considerations, I think you have need to have a very clear sense of, in the current environment, what business issues or challenges or opportunities you're really good at helping your customers deal with. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean, even if you narrow the scope of what yep. you typically sell.
0: Yep. Uh, and and by the way, I think sometimes you need to do that, this narrowing of the scope, because um, uh, I was observing this actually in the past few years in some of the clients I've worked with, that sometimes salespeople for a variety of motivations sought to make the deal as big as possible you know Mm -hmm. could we sell this to another department could we add another module and the danger with that and it was a danger then it's even more of a danger now is you just make the whole decision making process the financial approval and so on just so complicated that you sort of you, you defeat your ability to help the customer come to a confident timely decision so uh, I, and, of course, a growing number of the organizations I work with, you know, I guess maybe your experience as well, are selling uh, their offering as a service rather than an outright purchase. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just get your boots on the ground in the, in the customer, find an application, demonstrate your value, land and expand. Yeah, we we'll
1: demonstrate value with a quick payback. I agree. Yep. Speed to value is is I think really important if you're trying to demonstrate a sense of urgency for the buyers to why to proceed at this point in time.
0: Well, and 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 part of that the tactical urgency is a topic that you know has been on my mind for some time and that's helping the customer to recognize the cost and consequences of inaction. You know, the um mm-hmm. The risks of sticking with the status quo
1: yeah, well, I think when, and that's, I think that's a great point because I think it oftentimes gets lost when we talk about reducing the perception of risk uh, for the buyer in terms of making a decision to proceed is there is always the hundred and eighty degree perspective, which is yeah what is what is the risk I mean they <laughs> I tell people they balance out right I mean the the risk of of not moving forward should in some ways be the inverse of, you know, the degree of risk of, of moving
0: forward. Well, and it, it, my observations are that the most compelling proposals actually address both. You know, they address the idea that if we just stay as we are, there's uh, uh, maybe increasing unnecessary expenditure, there's increasing risk and risk, burden of risk. And yet, if we choose to act, and we act in a thoughtful way and we're persuaded by the vendor uh, to have confidence in their approach, that you balance that cost of staying as you the risk of staying where you are with an upside. So you're kind of stretching the value gap from both ends.
1: But mm. I think the important thing in there though is that you have to quantify what that is. It is too often I see sellers go into a situation, and they try to make the case as in sort of general terms of the risks of Staying still, yeah, and that's okay. That might apply at a certain level. You can paint a certain picture, pull some emotional strings. But if you want to make that really effective, is if you agree what the impact is going to be if, with the customer. What's staying still? Well, let's quantify that. What's that mean in terms of top line, you know, dollars or pounds or how we want to denominate it?
0: Uh, my, what does how that mean? might your revenue growth be slowed, or how might your revenue decline? How might your costs go out of control? how my monetizable risks right. um, increase. but like quantify. at the end of the day, you know, most of these decisions have some element of, they need to have an element of rationality, but there also needs to be some element of emotion. Um, but I think if there isn't a rational business case, I think that makes it harder to get people, the approvers, to sign off on projects. Yeah. So,
1: but to your point is, which I think was a great point, is in this environment, is speed to value, meaning how quickly do they get a payback, uh, is really important. So you have to identify those opportunities, and those could be, and most likely are, smaller chunks of perhaps bigger opportunities that you've already been talking to the buyer about, yeah. and peel it off, and peel it off. And I think that this is actually, and I wrote about this in in my first book. I actually think this is a strategy you should use at all times.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, I think all that's happening, uh, and you've alluded to this, is that these changes have illuminated um, good and bad practices that have been around for a while. And they've made the gap between continuing with bad practice and implementing good practice uh, even wider in in the world of selling.
1: Yeah, but your point about the the land and expand strategy. And even if you're doing it, you know, you could be doing it with uh, you know subscription based software, you could be doing it with subscription based service, or it could be even hardware products. So that that the primary thing is you got to get in the door. And I see too many sellers get hung up on deal size. We I mean, now we all want to sell bigger deals and there's a way to develop them. But there's oftentimes deals where it's like, yeah, we're gonna get a big deal. The customer's on board. We've done the justification. We've done the business plan. They're ready to make that that decision. Uh, They're comfortable with the risks involved. They're comfortable with us. But you also have to be aware and say, okay, we've got a real good potential to get a customer here. We've got to scale this back to get started,
0: though. Yeah, and it's counterintuitive to some salespeople, not to all, but it's counterintuitive to some. Um, But in 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 any business that has the potential. To adopt a land and expand strategy, that strategy is normally a superior strategy. Uh, I tell you, it implies another thing as well, mm-hmm. and that's that uh, in differentiating why the customer should regard uh, your your uh, your solution. I'm a bit anti the word solution, but let yes, me use the convenience <laughs> here. Um, is the one. Uh, where the approach to implementing and achieving the results is one that gives them the highest possible confidence. So in other words, you're not just selling the old product-centric feature function benefit and so on. I think you really need to sell what sets your approach to delivering outcomes apart from the other options that they might be considering. You know, that higher, higher sense of confidence mm-hmm. in the outcome or the result. Because that, you do that well, you can sort of blow away some of the reticence about making a commitment. If there's that confidence that, wow, you know, the way you will work with the customer mm-hmm. to achieve the outcome uh, is a real confidence builder.
1: Well, I think this is a case, though, where words really matter. And you, you talk about this in, in some of the things you've written, is that, yeah, solution is relatively generic. Right? Yeah. You don't buy our solution. We have a solution to your problem. It, it misses that extra step of taking it to a point where you're talking about outcomes that you can quantify the value of. And as long as you have that gap, it's hard to make the customer feel like you really understand their problem, their issue, their goals, their objectives, the outcomes they're trying to achieve. If you keep it generic,
0: yeah. So the the closer your, uh, the more tailored your value story to the customer's particular circumstances, the better. Um, and uh, a focus on outcomes, in my view and in my experience, is not only helpful in securing the sale it is also tremendously valuable for your implementation and customer success teams to understand not just functionally what the customer needs, but operationally what business impact they're trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. And and so your customer success and your implementation functions um, can go into that relationship, not just thinking about some of the Uh, conventional metrics of customer success, you know, usage um, uptime, what have you, but also think about, well, you may be using it 99.99% of the time or what have you, but what business benefits have you derived from the fact that the application's been accessible to you? Um, and, And I think we all know that the economics of any sort of sale as a service tend not to turn to profit in, you know, the first year. They 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 typically demand a multi-year engagement with the customer to really start ramping on the, you know, the long-term profitability of the relationship. And if you're not achieving the outcomes, or the customers not achieving the outcomes they sought. Your chances of getting that renewal or that expansion or what have you are very seriously compromised.
1: Yeah, well, I think that this really speaks to the need, which is more important than ever now. Is that you have real alignment with an involvement in in the sale with your customer success teams and and so on, so that everybody understands what the expectations are.
0: It's so important,
1: and I see cases all the time where you know something gets handed over the wall. Okay, here's this customer. And it's not accompanied by, A, customer success wasn't involved in the deal up front, so they really understood what they were getting into or being committed to. But secondly, even if that didn't happen, even sales didn't give them appropriate briefing for, as they meet the customers, this is what the expectations are of the customer.
0: Oh, Lord. And then you expose the customer to, hold on, I've told, I've told you all these questions before. I've answered all these questions before when you know, I spoke to the salesperson. <laughs> yeah, Why is it you're deal. asking me again? I mean, good grief.
1: Yeah, I know. Yeah, I, have a, I have a rule of thumb that says that your, your odds of winning a deal uh, drop in inverse proportions. The number of times you ask the customer to explain the requirements.
0: <laughs> I'm sure the statistical validity in that.
1: <laughs> well, you think about it. Is, you know, a salesperson goes in, does the first call, and then well, I'm going to involve my manager on the next call. So, manager, first question they ask is, you know, tell us what you need. Let's go back through it. And so, the messaging to the customer is now the manager doesn't trust the salesperson because I've already told them, but they want to hear it for yeah. themselves. And then you bring in the CRO or the VP of Sales for another, you know.
0: Further on down the process, they ask the same question again. It's like I mean, good good grief. I mean, there's there are some business models where, for example, you might have business development reps whose goal is to mm-hmm. book a demo and then somebody else takes over from the demo. And, you know, my goodness, if the person who's coming into the demo cold hasn't had the benefit of a briefing, a proper briefing, about what the customer's priorities are, and so on, well, you end up with a demo being a product demo. And that's the worst of the three types of demo that you might choose to do. You might choose to do uh, a product demo, but that's really how many features can I show you in the hope that some of it will stick. Mm -hmm. Uh, You might consciously do what I call a conceptual demo, which is very deliberately high-level, very conversational uh, just trying to position the sort of uh, approach that your solution takes and and uh, there's a strong element of discovery in that conversation as well right uh, and then at the other end of the scale is not a product demo but a solution demo and there if you're doing a decent job you're going to be very selective about what you choose to show the customer and The things you'll choose to show will be wrapped around a narrative, which is drawn from what you've discovered about both their functional requirements and their business needs. You know, conceptual demos are fine in an early stage as a positioning exercise. Solution demos are great if you've done good discovery. Pure, full on, let me show you what the product does or let me take you on a tour of functionality. I mean, really. You, you know, salespeople can and ought to do better than that.
1: Well, yeah. For all the benefit and all the value the customer would get for that is, you can have a two minute explainer video on the front of your website.
0: Well, and in fact, you're you're right, and that, uh, and actually, the combination of a explainer video, perhaps with a little bit of diagnostic. You know, tell me about your priorities. If priority A is this video, if priority B is that video, and so on. You know there are absolutely ways around it.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, so you said you do work with you know a number of tech companies and SaaS companies and so on. Is yeah, is do you sense because that yeah, making the the first outbound call really in order to connect with the right person and set up a demo. Do you see that changing that model changing here and in, in as a result of what we're going through? Because there seems to be fairly broad consensus that. Yeah at this point in time we really need to reach out just with our focus on how do we help you right what's what's what are the the important things that are going on with you these days that you're thinking about that potentially we could help you with and so it's much more of a a service versus a sales model
0: oh good grief i mean it, it is so much more appropriate it has always been i think it's even more important now to think of that call as um to uncover needs and and share experiences with the customer that they might find relevant and might persuade them that we could help them achieve their, their business goals. You go into that sort of call thinking, my primary objective. If you go into that call thinking, my compensation this month depends on how many demos i book, not on how good a job I do in engaging the customer and uncovering need, you're just gonna drive it's an, another classic case of compensation driving behavior, both good and bad.
1: Mm-hmm. But do you think that you'll see this type of behavior, which is runs fairly rampant in the SaaS yep. business? Do, do you think some companies are beginning to see it doesn't work? Uh, I think an increasing number of companies.
0: Yeah, you know, we talked about personalities again, right? Mm-hmm. And I think there are sales organizations whose personality is very activity driven, activity metric. Um, and, and not sufficiently focused on, on quality. Mm-hmm. And I do think there are other sales organizations, and some of it comes from the DNA of either the chief executive or the sales leader, who uh, you know have a more nuanced approach, which says, actually what we're looking for is to uh, generate quality outcomes. So a quality outcome might be um, rewarding the BDRs not on the number of demos booked but on the number of sales-accepted, properly-qualified opportunities that their activities generate. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really depends. I mean, if you've got a an unenlightened sales leader or CEO, you can't really impose an enlightened system in that environment.
1: Yeah, well, some make the argument that, that really since the last recession, 2008, so yeah, let's say 2010. The last 10 years, sort of the wild wild west. Yeah, we've we've had you know, booming stock market, business has generally been good. We haven't had a recession in that time, which is certainly longer than you would expect from a business cycle standpoint. And thus, it sort of has encouraged this this type of quantity based activity and, and behaviors.
0: I, 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 unfortunately, I think it has, and um, there's a sort of a there's an extinction event coming on. If you want to think of the Darwinian, um, the big bang, where, uh, you know, the more agile adaptable organizations, organizations with an eye on the future will emerge from this in very, very different shape from, you know, all we need to do is go back to what we were doing before and turn the amplifiers up to 11. I mean, Mm -hmm. uh, not, I think a, um, a good strategy. Uh, and, you know, I will say to you, and maybe it's self-selecting in a Darwinian way as well, that most of the clients I manage to work with, uh, you know, uh, have an enlightened approach. And they're really looking for some some help and some guidance to, to apply that enlightened um, approach rather than, you know, I think it's really hard to persuade somebody who's running um, and has believed all their life in a, Activity metric, uh, rigid process environment—it's it, pretty hard to persuade them unless they come across a really sort of confrontational experience, which forces them to revisit their, you know, their, their historic assumptions. It, it, it can be hard to persuade, can't it?
1: Um, yeah. What, so here's here my thought on on that. To some degree, is that that, uh, and this is, I think, to your point about sort of a potential extinction event, not necessarily for companies, but perhaps for sales managers, sales leaders, is that I think we've had this environment that's enabled people to be in these sales management roles that fundamentally don't know how to sell. Now, they know how to you know, work the activities, manage them at activity levels, and so on, But but when they coming into this era where I think that we're in now where the ability to connect through shared <laughs> shared experiences on a human level with somebody build that relationship perhaps more for the future as opposed to an immediate need or a smaller immediate need a larger upside that that's that's foreign to a lot of people
0: unfortunately yes and you know um, they will I think I'm sure struggle, with the transition and certainly if they stay as they are they're they're really going to find it increasingly uh, difficult now uh, i also think that you know we can start to identify certain aspects of sales dna that are going to be particularly important in yeah you know, the world we're we're now uh, entering the new world we're now entering mm-hmm. um, and it's going to be much more important to have You know, you talked about business acumen, to uh, develop the sort of business acumen that allows you to have uh, um, an insightful conversation uh, on business issues rather than uh, technical issues um, with executives. Uh, Absolutely critical. Um, You know, we're going to need to hire people and actually identify the people in our current sales force who are naturally curious, who are empathetic, who, and this is a real test for me, um, are really on a personal development program, almost regardless of the training that their current employer chooses to invest in. They themselves have set set themselves on a sort of a personal improvement track, and that's such an important thing to look for in hiring Uh, Curiosity, good listening, empathy, uh, self-development, um, as well as all the usual sort of attributes that you would expect. I, I think the other thing that's happening, and I, I, did, I do tend to work in what you characterize as more complex B2B environments rather than transactional ones, Right, is a recognition that you do require that flexibility, that adaptability, that business acumen. And you really need to have your salespeople working in what I'd characterise as a flexible supportive framework rather than a, a very rigidly defined process. Um you know, something that acts as a guide rather than as an auditor. Um mm-hmm. so, you know, the, the the attitudes and the systems need to be supportive of, of that.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's critical, and I've talked about that here on the show numerous times, numerous times with guests, is that is to your point is we have to have our own processes set up in a way that we enable people to become the best version of themselves. Yeah, because, yeah, especially in a complex environment, it's true of all sales situations, but especially in a complex environment, no two situations are ever the same.
0: Yeah, but they aren't. And so your ability to diagnose and react rather than following yes. a script or a rigid process, exactly. it's one of the reasons, by the way, why I've become a, a firm fan of um, sort of characterizing the pipeline, not in terms of the very sort of conventional sales activity um, labeled stages, you mm-hmm. know, qualifying, uh, demonstrating, proposing but instead getting salespeople to step back and think about where's the customer in their decision-making process. Mm -hmm. You know, are they at a very early exploring stage? Are they starting to more clearly define what it is they think they need and how they're going to decide? Are they into perhaps some more structured selection, evaluation, or even post Having decided a preference, are they in a sort of a verifying stage where they really want to go back and make sure they have negotiated the best deal, they have eliminated concerns and reservations, uh, and so on? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that customer-centric perspective is so much more valuable than uh, a traditional you know, series of sales activities uh, glued together.
1: Yeah, I, I agree I agree 100% on that. The problem is is A, getting people to think that way, you know, to change their system to think sure. that way, but but also to acknowledge that yeah, that what's driving the conversation is the buyer's process not the sales process.
0: Yeah, and you need to work out where they are and I think you can establish reasonably consistent generic descriptions of the stage of consideration they're at. But the specifics of their buying process are likely to be, well, somewhat unique to them. So mm-hmm. there's a sort of a blend of, there, there are some things you can equip salespeople to do that reflect this sort of broad understanding of approximately where the customer is in the, in the process. And of course, you, it's really important you understand what their process is. And, and I, I would suggest even more critical. To work out whether your prime contact or primary contacts really understand how buying decisions get made in their organization, you know, and there's often a difference, isn't there? Oh yeah, because they don't do it very often. You know, complex
1: products. Yeah, you may buy it once every five years. You're not going to have that (laughs) documented.
0: One of the things we coach to diagnose at an early stage. Uh, And there are two really important simple dimensions. The first dimension is, is this an inevitable purchase or a discretionary purchase? You know, Mm -hmm. do they have to do something? The only question is what, or is it also possible they'll decide to stick with the status quo? Really, really critical. Uh, And I think the second one is to your point. uh, the individual or the group of people we're working through, would we characterize them as experienced or inexperienced buyers? Uh, and I think those, those two simple data points um, need to inform how we choose to behave and interact with them. Yeah. No, oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely.
1: All right, well, Bob, we sort of uh, run out of time here today, unfortunately. We could keep on going. Shame. But uh, tell folks how they can connect with you.
0: Well, um, I'd be delighted to connect with any of the listeners uh, through LinkedIn or Twitter. You can find me at Bob Apollo on both of those social networking sites. So I'd also be exceptionally pleased if anybody was motivated enough to sign up for the blog. And they can find the blog at the Inflection Point website. And that's uh, inflection P-O-I-N-T dot com. You have to get that
1: text spelling in there <laughs> with the X as <laughs> opposed to the C-K. Um, yeah,
0: well, oh, the C-T, the CT uh, yeah, know, yeah, the yeah. occasional confusion. Yeah, yeah, no. It's a good blog. I subscribe to it, recommend people do. So, uh, Bob, thanks for joining us. Andy, thank you very much for the invitation. I have thoroughly enjoyed the conversation.
1: Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank Bob Apollo for sharing his insights with us today. Now, if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to this podcast. If you could also leave us a rating or review and let us know how we're doing, we'd certainly appreciate it. And you can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this podcast is over. So thanks for your help. Thank you so much also for investing your time with us today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.